Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there. It's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong, the weekly podcast where we take the tomato meter and say, wait a minute, is that movie really that good? Or come on, there's no way that movie's that bad. I'm usually joined by my beloved co-host, Jacqueline Coley. She's under the weather right now. She just said they're a little bug, nothing to be too concerned about is what I'm is what my sources tell me. But she's not feeling up to broadcasting today. And we're talking about some really scary stuff on this show this particular week. We're talking about some spookiness. We're talking about some creatures that may kind of crawl into your brain and just never really leave because that's the kind of earworms that Guillermo del Toro plants every time he makes a picture. They're not always horror movies. Sometimes they're family fables, but they always tend to be a little darker in the storytelling and a little more exotic with the creature creations because it is the genius of Guillermo del Toro. So we're going to be talking about that in celebration of a couple different things. I mean, first of all, it's the Halloween season. All right. The pumpkin spice, it's wafting in the air. So these are the kind of movies that we like celebrating, particularly this time of year. And then we also have National Hispanic Heritage Month. And Guillermo del Toro has a new Netflix show called Cabinet of Curiosities that comes out, I believe, this month as well. And then he also has the Pinocchio movie, a very different spin on Pinocchio that comes out in December of 2022. I want to talk about that trailer with our special guest, by the way. And so I want to give a shout out before we bring in our guest, before we do anything else to not just Guillermo del Toro and his amazing filmography, but also to our very own Alex Vo, who curated a wonderful editorial that is the top 10 Guillermo del Toro movies ranked by Tomato Meter. Technically, there's 11 movies on there, but uh, I'm just going to say Blade 2 didn't quite make the cut. We love you, Blade 2. We love you. Didn't quite make the cut. Um, so we also are going to be counting down the audience score versus the tomato meter, what we think is accurate, what we think is, isn't. That's what we do here on this show. So if you want to check out the editorial by Alex, you can go to RottenTomatoes.com. And now, without further ado, here are the top 10 movies according to the tomato meter directed by Guillermo del Toro at number one. Should be no surprise that it is Pan's Labyrinth, the landmark Fairy tale film from 2006, 95% certified fresh. The Devil's Backbone is number two, 93% certified fresh. The Shape of Water, the Oscar-winning film from 2017, is 92% certified fresh. At number four, we go way, way back to 1993's Kronos, the sort of debut feature film 
of Del Toro. That's 89% certified fresh. At number five and number six, respectively, are Hellboy 2, the Golden Army, and then Hellboy. So that's 86% for Hellboy 2, 81% for Hellboy. Number seven is the recently released Nightmare Alley, which has a really cool black and white edition, 80% certified fresh. At the number eight spot is Crimson Peak, 73% certified fresh. I don't know if it's certified fresh. It might just be fresh. I don't know. Crimson Peak, you may be on shaky ground. You're fresh for now, as is number nine's Pacific Rim, which is 72% fresh. And then we close out the top 10 with Mimic from 1997, 64% fresh. The only one that didn't make the top 10 is Blade 2. And that's also the only rotten film that Del Toro's ever directed to this point. 57% rotten. All right, enough math, enough of me talking percentages and numerals. Let's bring in not only one of my favorite guests, not only one of my favorite people on earth, but just I, I think this is the perfect guest for this episode because she loves all things that are scary, all things that are dark, all things that are fantastical, and she is herself dark, fantastical, and mysterious. The one, the only, you know her as one of the creators of the World Girls podcast and their spinoff show, Bitch Out of Water. It is Darina Ariano. Darina, welcome back to Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong. Lovely to see you. Hola, hola. Always happy to be here. You forgot to uh, also say that it's the perfect episode to bring me in because I, too, am Mexicana, like uh, the masterpiece of a man that we're talking about here. So very proud to be here. Very happy to be back uh, at, with the Rotten Tomatoes crew. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And, and, and you know, you, you bring up his heritage and it was such a landmark Oscars moment when he won um, for The Shape, out, uh, Shape of Water and, and that film won Best Picture at the Academy Awards ceremony. I think you and I might have been watching that together. I think that might have been back in our Collider days where we got together at the actual office and we were watching the broadcast that night. And it was just such a cool moment because we, I mean, regardless of what you think of Shape of Water, and I've heard some varying takes on it that I agree with both ways, but Del Toro himself, he's just such a lovable, joyous guy. And so to see him get acclaimed, to see him be able to hold a statue and have it be so full of meaning for him, it was so cool to watch. Yeah, I especially love the moment where, obviously, I think the year prior was the hilarious Oscar year of uh, where they messed up uh, and thought that La La Land won. <laughs> the frozen but, envelope. But yeah. really Moonlight won. And so I think Guillermo goes up to Warren Beatty to get the Oscar and he doesn't even hug him. He actually like grabs uh, the the letter from him and he, to make sure that he actually won. <laughs> and he's so happy about it and super cute. And then he hugs Warren Beatty. I love that moment. But yeah, so, yeah. so happy that uh, as much as you know, there there's obviously political turmoil uh, in America. Love that we have several Mexican directors winning for uh, Oscar for Best Director. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you talk about Alfonso Cuaron, you talk about Guillermo del Toro, and it really does paint a picture for you as to just sort of the artistic upbringing that they had in their home country. And you see so many of those fingerprints in del Toro work specifically. I mean, you go all the way back to Kronos, or you talk about The Devil's Backbone, Pan's Labyrinth. So we're going to talk about all these movies. When I read off the, the ranking of del toro movies by tomato meter is there like one thing that stood out to you where you're like wait 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 wait, that feels a little off well you know i usually very much disagree with rotten tomatoes i am shocked that rotten tomatoes <laughs> seems to be correct for once uh because i 
think I mostly agree with this list. I've never, ever agreed. And so I'm very surprised. Uh, I, I definitely think Pan's Labyrinth is, is his best movie by far. Uh, but I don't hate any of his movies. Uh, I even think Blade 2 has some fun moments. Uh, if anything, I think that my least favorite, and this might make people sad, is Pacific Rim. So I might put that a little bit lower. Uh, as a kaiju fan, I wanted more kaiju. Uh, as opposed to the human story. So uh, I, uh, yeah, Pacific Rim's not my favorite. I would put that much lower than than everything else, but I mostly agree with this movie, uh, with this ranking. Yeah, I, I, I kind of have this similar feelings towards Pacific Rim, which is surprising if you've ever talked to me for five minutes, but I'm also so, and I want you to shed some light on this later in the show when we get into movie talk about uh, Crimson Peak and, and how maybe that movie was just a little mismarketed and it actually was something else the whole time. So we have a lot to get into here with Del Toro and his body of work. And then at the end, I do want to leave a little bit of time to talk about his work as an executive producer, as a screenwriter, just a force behind the scenes as well, because he's worked on a lot of films that he didn't necessarily direct, but they're films that we know and we hold dear. So without further ado, let's first turn it over to Tim Ryan. He's the expert curation uh, manager here. He does all the reviews at Rotten Tomatoes, kind of... Uh, aggregates all of them and funnels them into the tomato meter. He's one of the many folks that makes this engine called Rotten Tomatoes hum. So let's turn it over to Tim for his segment, Two Minutes with Tim. Two Minutes with Tim. Okay, so here's a very brief overview of Guillermo del Toro's filmography. His best-reviewed film is Pan's Labyrinth from 2006, which is certified fresh at 95% on the tomato meter with 241 reviews, and it has a 91% audience score. Number two is The Devil's Backbone from 2001, which is certified fresh at 93% with 120 reviews, and it has an 89% audience score. And number three is Best Picture winner The Shape of Water from 2017, which is certified fresh at 92% with 462 reviews, and it has a 72% audience score. His worst reviewed is Blade 2, which is rotten at 57% with 150 reviews, though it does have a 68% audience score and a pretty substantial cult following. All I'm saying is if Blade 2 is your worst-reviewed movie, you've had a pretty outstanding career. So what did the critics have to say? In a fresh review for Pan's Labyrinth, David Germain of the Associated Press wrote, Guillermo del Toro has crafted a masterpiece, a terrifying, visually wondrous fairy tale for adults that blends fantasy and gloomy drama into one of the most magical films to come along in years. However, in a rotten review for Blade 2, Jack Matthews of the New York Daily News wrote, Del Toro is a stylish horror meister, and he has created an evocative, foreboding atmosphere. But only a fan of this kind of mayhem could find a way into the story. So that's a very brief look at Guillermo del Toro. And I just want to say that the one time I met him, he seemed really nice. Back to you folks. Thank you, Tim. You're very nice as well. The many times I've gotten to meet you. I want to say I met Guillermo del Toro once upon a time. Darina, have you ever had the pleasure of meeting the man? No, um, I was actually in the same room as him. But you know me, I don't like going to bother people and saying hi. Uh, and uh, even though I, I actually did do that with Diego Luna, because I'm like, oh, he's he wasn't famous yet in America. And, and I speak Spanish. So we were able to talk. Same with Oscar Isaac. But but uh, with Guillermo, I, it was like his Q&A. Uh, I actually think it was for Shape of Water. So I was like, I'm not going to do that thing where I'm like, let me go talk to him while he's, you know, being uh, run amok by fans. So, uh, but <laughs> uh, I do. The very nice thing about you is, is that Drina never bothers famous people because she's too busy getting into the after party before anybody else. She's well, too busy true. securing the wristbands. You also got to, you know, make sure you're, while everybody's trying to talk to the celebrities, I am at the buffet 
eating the food that nobody's eating. So um, priorities here. But no, uh, I totally agree with Tim. I hear that Guillermo is a lovely person. And I like to think that most Mexican horror fans like ourselves are pretty nice people because we grew up in a very, you know, messed up way. And uh, as Guillermo del Toro has been asked before, I don't know if you saw his interview where they were like, hey, how do you balance the dark with the good or something like that? And he just goes, I'm Mexican. Like he's like, no, no one loves loves life more than we do because we know we're going to die. So it, we have a very similar philosophies. Let's go into movie talk right now because I, I want to keep talking about this. So hit the music, Brian. It is movie talk, not necessarily religion talk, but it's hard to separate the two when you talk about Del Toro because a lot of times our fables, our fairy tales, our mythology is rooted in religious concepts. But before we get into any of these specific movies, and I know, Darina, I want to get your thoughts on Pan's Labyrinth, on Crimson Peak, on Nightmare Alley, all these movies. What was the first time that Del Toro came on your radar? You know, it's a really bizarre uh, thing that probably people have not heard of outside of Mexico. But um, his first feature film was Cronos, which uh, was in, I think, 93. So I definitely saw that as his first movie. But uh, in Mexico, when I was a kid in the 80s, like in the late 80s, there was a show similar to The Twilight Zone that was called La Hora Marcada. I, I guess it would translate to The Marked Hour. And Guillermo del Toro, along with other famous uh, Mexican filmmakers like Cuaron and uh, Emanuel Lubezki, they all were part of the show. And and they basically just brought in, you know, like creepy kind of sci-fi horror uh episodes. Uh, I think including one of them made like a Stephen King short story. And it was a very short lived um, TV show uh, or TV series that was not meant for kids. But obviously, you know, nobody cares down there. So I, I, I would watch it at night and freak out. And I loved it. And later as an adult, I, I figured out, oh, Guillermo thought it was behind this. So it was a pretty cool thing to not even know that I was watching a man that I would grow up to admire. Yeah, it's it's interesting for me because I remember seeing I I Kronos never hit my radar as as a kid. Um like when it came out back in 93 and it has a very young Ron Perlman in it and and it's a wonderful movie by the way. It's great. But I remember seeing trailers for Mimic and Mira Sorvino being the star of it and just you know even the critic response like as the movie's coming out, you know, they always have like critics are saying this, but I remember them saying just how original it was and and how spooky it was and how well crafted the story was. And so it's like, OK, who is behind this again? Is this Guillermo del Toro guy? And then Blade 2 comes out. But it really wasn't until Pan's Labyrinth that you sort of realize that this guy is is really something special in the world of storytelling. And because c- I remember the Hellboy, the, the first Hellboy film had come out and it just didn't really hit my radar at that time. But Pan's Labyrinth sure did because everybody was talking about it. And it ends up having this legacy of being his highest rated film on the tomato meter, 95% certified fresh, 91% audience score. What is it to you, Darina, about Pan's Labyrinth that makes it worthwhile as far as being at the top of such a celebrated filmmaker's filmography? Well, I think uh, in every single movie that Guillermo has made, uh, he's basically immersing us in this fantasy world with ghosts and fantastical creatures and monsters. But at the end of the day, all of his stories remind us that the scariest monsters are the humans. 
right? And so, which we can obviously all relate, uh, especially nowadays in, in the wor <laughs> world that we live in. And so the beautiful thing about Pan's Labyrinth is that um, it not only is just a visually stunning film, and uh, it's one of my favorite scores by Javier Navarrete, who also did Devil's Backbone, and he's worked with him before. Uh, but um, it's it's just such a, it, I don't know if you saw Devil's Backbone, but yeah. they're, they're both similar, right? Where uh, this is, a, Devil's Backbone is about a, a little boy that is uh, basically living through the Spanish Civil War. And in Pan's Labyrinth, it's a little girl that's living through that. And so the kind of contrast of having, you know, the 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 boys or, or in my opinion, uh, the fascism is a is a male concept. Right. And so uh, seeing that through the eyes of this little girl that has nowhere else to go and shows she's, she's kind of dreamt up this fantasy world to escape, uh, you know, these evil dudes that are basically uh, f following and rooting for a dictator, which uh, later became to be uh, Francisco Franco. It's, it's just such a it, it, it's such a heart wrenching movie. It's so it's so freaking sad. But at the same time, it's inspiring because um it, I guess the the concept of humans continuing to dream and imagine can sometimes still overcome the horrible things that that uh, people can do. And and just visually, I think what really sold Pan's Labyrinth, what was one of the the cogs in the machine that got it on people's radar initially, was the look of the creatures. Because you hear it's this fairy tale, and and it's set back in a war torn era, but. Seeing the creatures, particularly Pale Man, just the look of Pale Man, where you have eyes on your hands and then, you know, he could put them in so it kind of looks like he's human, but then he removes them and you're like, what the hell is this thing? And then you hear the shriek, the, the scream from Pale Man. Like, you see stuff like that. And then you have Pan slash the fawn, which is an awesome look. You have the fairies flying around. It was just, it looked like nothing that we had ever seen before. Right. And it felt so wholly original. And again, this came out in the mid-2000s. And so this is a time where your big block Busters were starting to be comic book movies. They didn't really have them all, you know, lined up together like you get with the MCU now. But you would see stuff that you had heard of before that you had read in comic books. Pan's Labyrinth Arena was like nothing I'd ever seen. None of the creatures felt familiar. It all felt so fresh and so new. And I think that's one of the reasons why people kept coming back to it. Well, and it's it's basically kind of like makes you feel uh, like when you were a kid and you were watching fantasy movies like, you know, uh, Never Ending Story or uh, Labyrinth or any of those uh, movies when you're when you're a kid that are more about actually family films. And then now you get to see Pan's Labyrinth, Pan's Labyrinth, which is about a little girl, but it's a very, you know, adult oriented film because it's actually really scary. Not just the creatures that you're men mentioning, but the true villains, which are the humans. Right. And so um, I, I completely agree with you that for me, it was like, it, it made me feel like a little kid. It made me feel scared. It made me feel uh, hopeful at the same time, bringing me back to kind of like I was watching a movie when I was a little kid in the 80s, right? Except this time it was 2006 and I was an adult uh, eating my popcorn because I was so stressed out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as the as the wonderful band Farner would say, it, it feels like the first time. And in that, it was like the first time I went back to the movies. It was like the first time I was in a movie theater because I just saw it on a whim, had heard some things about it, and it just completely blew me away how immersive this this ethereal sort of presence was. And you just felt it throughout the runtime of the film. But I'm glad you brought up The Devil's Backbone, too, because I, it's number two 
as far as the rating goes. And I feel like Devil's Backbone has earned that right. And I don't think enough people talk about this film now because it's so vintage del Toro in that it is super scary at moments, but there is a, a sweetness to it. There is, there's a rooting interest. You're watching it sort of through the eyes of a child, but the scene in Devil's Backbone that always gives me is 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 when th this kid Carlos is at this new school. There's this this young ghost that's sort of wandering the grounds. And you don't really know is it is it a force of good? Is it a force of evil? The first time he starts seeing these apparitions, it's so well crafted and it freaks you the f out. But you also can't turn the movie off at that point because you have to unravel the rest of this mystery. Totally, and um, it, it's uh, it, it's crazy because I completely agree. There's that scene where I think the uh, Santi, the little ghost kid, is following mm -hmm. Carlos uh, in the hallway, and then Carlos hides in this room and closes a door, and it seems like the ghost is trying to like get into the door, and then he looks in the uh, the door hole. And you and all of a sudden the ghost uh, kid's eye shows up like that's a, such a good uh, jump scare scene, even though I don't think Guillermo Toro actually likes doing those. But um, I just it just one, it was one of those things where I remember watching in the theater in Mexico and everybody jumped and freaked out. So uh, but it, it also at the same time, even though it can be scary, it's literally like other than Pan's Labyrinth, the saddest horror movie ever made. <laughs> like, that's the thing about his movies, right? That they are, they're horror movies, but they're they're basically, a lot of them are about war seen through an innocent kid's eyes. So it's it's a, it's beautiful and heartbreaking at the same time that it's scary. Yeah, and, and it reminded me, I, I guess this movie came out in 2001, and then I hadn't seen it until I had, until after I'd already seen a film that Del Toro executive produced that I don't think it's nearly enough love. And that's the orphanage because they kind of felt like similar tones. But I saw the orphanage first. And like, I remember walking out of that thing, just being like, what the hell did I just see? This was so good. And so to see the devil's backbone, to see sort of, you know, is something that clearly might have inspired the orphanage. It's a really good double feature. If y'all are if the, the kids are done trick or treating and you got all the candy that you bought for the kids and they didn't claim. So now it's yours. Sit down. And I think it's a pretty good double feature of the devil's backbone into the orphanage. Except the orphanage is actually, I think, pretty scary. Like it's it's one of the scariest movies I've seen you in the think theater. It's scary. Yeah, no, that's well, breaking news. Exactly. Well, there, dude, the scene where the grandma uh, is uh, walking through the street with the carriage or whatever yeah. it is, and then and then she gets hit. That was amazing. That was really well done. I think it's actually one of the scariest scenes that I've shown people that they hate me for. It's similar to the, the descent. What is, the, the descent's another good one too. And again, if, if you're able to get a, a scare out of Darina, then you're you're doing something right or or very very wrong. Um. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. 
That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. If I, if I give you just sort of the landscape of, of Del Toro's filmography, and you can toss Blade 2 into this, I don't think you'll need to, it, what is the scariest movie that he directed, in your opinion? What is the one that scares you the most? Is it The Devil's Backbone because of some of those sort of against-type jump scares? Is it just Pan's Labyrinth because of the, the, the sort of philosophical, uh, religious sort of component to it? Or is it something else? Yeah, I think um, I don't. That's the thing about Del Toro is that he grew up like me, just being fascinated by monsters and loving. Uh, he, you know, he worships Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, right? Like, uh, which Frankenstein uh, as a movie isn't really that scary, but the concept of it is scary, right? So I think uh, the two that you brought up are the scariest one in, in those two concepts. Like Devil's Backbone has these like really creepy kid that you don't know like you said if he's good or bad so like you don't know when he's going to show up so the it's as as a as a ghost movie it's very um i think it's a pretty it's a really good ghost movie versus uh pan's labyrinth the pale man is like my favorite guillermo del toro creature uh like you described him like he's actually like pretty scary looking and and uh shout out to Doug Jones cuz he always plays the coolest scariest oh, he's creatures the best uh, but uh, but the scariest villain I think in in or one of the scariest villains in movie history is the stepdad. You know he's literally a, yeah. an evil fascist stepdad. Like he's I think he's one of the most uh, horrific characters in a movie ever. So uh, he scared me the most out of any of Guillermo del Toro's villains. I, I will say Mimic has a really good suspenseful moment though on, on the subway where. Right. It's not it's not Mira Sorvino jogging away from she's not walking quickly. She's full on sprinting away from whatever this thing is. And that movie really just it's a good tool, I think, for young filmmakers to watch and just learn how to craft suspense and how to make a scene tense. And, you know, if we go back into sort of the, the, the Del Toro filmography, I think you pivot away from horror as far as the jump scares go, but something you hit on earlier, Darina, is that a lot of times, regardless of all the fantastical, scary-looking creatures in Del Toro movies, the humans are really the problem here. And I think that that's best exemplified by his number three movie on the tomato meter, and that is The Shape of Water, which, which won the Oscar. And so you see how evil, how twisted humans can be, whether it's against minorities, whether it's against uh, fish people. It, <laughs> there's a whole lot of evil going on, mainly from human beings in that. And then you get so much backlash because the film was so popular and won all these awards and is 92% certified fresh about how it's a little weird that Sally Hawkins is banging a fish in a bathtub. Let's be honest with what we saw. Where do you land on the shape of water now? Is it is it worthy of being his number three? Is it worthy of being 92% winning the Oscar? All that stuff. Look, story-wise, it's not my favorite. It's a very simple story. It really is a, a monster love story uh, at the end of the day. And some people could say it's a bestiality, I guess. <laughs> but but it, it look, if Bohemian Rhapsody can be nominated for several Oscars, <laughs> any movie can win, okay? <laughs> so Shape of Water is visually stunning. The score by Alexander Desplat is one of is gorgeous. Uh, and so even if you don't care about the story, it's because it, it's such a simple love story. Michael Shannon is one of the coolest living actors and yeah. such a such a great villain. And it, I just kind of felt like I was watching an old school uh, Hollywood fantasy movie, like from the back in the day before we were born, right? So um, I don't mind that this one, a bunch of crappy movies have won Oscars. Who cares? This is great. 
it, it's the same sort of environment that I feel like uh, a N- Nightmare Alley placed us in, where you instantly felt like you were in a different era of Hollywood watching this movie. And we all have jokes about her sleeping with the fish, but at the end of the day, she wasn't exactly killing it on Tinder, you know? And <laughs> and this fit, like, like you can go back and film more to the creature from the Black Lagoon, who I'm just going to say, arguably the best mate for that for that lovely lady you know i mean because again the creature from the black lagoon was in love was smitten and w- w- was sort of falling for this person i don't know that any male that's walking on land is going to be a better fit because we know most men are garbage so i don't have a big issue with her choosing this fish person because i think the fish person brings loyalty um you're going to have to address it at, at the holidays with your family but I think that ultimately it is a very simple love story. And I love that this film felt like it was marketed more properly towards what the subject matter was. And I think that's why it got so much love as opposed to something like Crimson Peak, where it felt like they were selling it as a straight up haunted house scare fest, which was not the intention of that movie at all. If anything, Crimson Peak is more of a love story along the lines of The Shape of Water than it is something like The Devil's Backbone. Totally. Um, I actually have very much switched my gears on Crimson Peak because of that, because it was I thought I was going to go see one of Guillermo Toro's scariest movies mm-hmm. and it ended up being uh, a love incest story. So I was very confused, <laughs> um, but but it looked so cool that I was like, whatever, man, like this looks amazing. It's a beautiful looking movie, like all his movies. Um, but yeah, it. I, I think uh, I, I don't actually know if I re- now that I've rewatched them if I like Crimson Peak or Shape of Water better. But I think you're right mm. that um, they're they're similar in that sense. It's just that Crimson Peak is more gothic horror versus uh, Shape of Water to me is like a straight up love story. I think that's probably why my simple brain appreciates the Shape of Water more because I rewatched Crimson Peak in prep for this episode because I do remember just feeling deflated and it was sort of the similar vibe that I had walking out of the M. Night Shyamalan film The Village where... <laughs> I can go back and watch The Village now. And I think I even said it on this podcast, like I really appreciate The Village and what it did. And now it's suddenly one of my favorite Shyamalan movies because of what that movie was doing, not what the marketing was trying to do to you. It was trying to manipulate you into thinking you're seeing something else. I think the same problem befell Crimson Peak, but also going back and watching it, maybe I'm just not a gothic romance kind of guy, Dorina. I I, I couldn't get into the story as much as I would want to, given that it's a Del Toro film with all those insanely cool visuals, it just nothing ever really grabbed me. And so if there was one that I might have to kick out of the top 10 and put Blade 2 in, I think Crimson Peak might be that movie. And it's not because I felt misdirected. It's just because, again, watching it now, it just it doesn't doesn't really grab me the same way. And I'm not really sure why. I mean, look, uh, not you can't be into everything. It's okay that you're not into gothic horror. Um, but me being into both of us being really into kaiju and loving monsters and loving yeah. monsters fighting, I'm very surprised that I think Pacific Rim is still my least favorite on this list. Uh, not because it's I don't think it's a bad movie. I just th- I just I just think it's one of his least exciting movies even though people love it so much i just wanted to see the kaiju fighting i want i was like give me godzilla don't give me this human story so uh, at least for crimson peak 
uh, you get to see like these really this really cool like creature woman, you know, like crawling through the hallways. And uh, there's just it, I don't care if the plot sucks or if you're not into the story as much. But as long as you give me visually stunning uh, cinematography, like constantly and production design and set design and all that, I'm good. Like I will enjoy that more than not being able to watch a monster, a cool kaiju fight because they're underwater. See, that's why I bumped Pacific Rim ahead of Crimson Peak for that very reason, because I feel like the way that the fights are choreographed between the Kaiju and the Jaegers in Pacific Rim is awesome. Because again, this movie came out and we're, we were still in the thick of these Michael Bay Transformers films that just became bigger disaster after bigger disaster. You go back to Transformers 3, Dark of the Moon, right? And there's a fight in Chicago that's the climax of the movie, and it takes like 45 minutes, and you can't really tell what the hell's going on. You can't tell who's an Autobot, who's a Decepticon. It's just a bunch of mashed potatoes. And then you watch something like Pacific Rim, and they're doing like mixed martial arts moves, and you can see it. You can see everything, even though it's dark and they're underwater sometimes, and it's a storm, you can still see what's happening. So I loved all that with Pacific Rim. My biggest issue with Pacific Rim, Dorina, you hit on it earlier, I do not care about any of the humans. I honestly don't think any of the performances are all that noteworthy with the exception of Idris Elba for two reasons. One, because his name is Stacker Pentecost, which is <laughs> arguably the coolest name in the history of names. And he also does have a nice Independence Day Bill Pullman speech moment that I don't think rises to the level of ID4. But it's a pretty good speech. If you put on the the sort of, you know, right before the, the climactic battle scene speech that he puts, it, it's a pretty good workout prep, you know, is to just you're ready to run through a brick wall after that thing, even though you don't really care about any of the humans in this movie. Today, there's not a man nor woman in here that shall stand alone. Not today. Today, we face the monsters that are at our door and bring the fight to them. Today we are canceling the apocalypse! Look, people, anybody that's thinking of directing a future kaiju movie, just give us Godzilla, man. We don't care about the humans. <laughs> we just want to see monsters fight. Godzilla versus Kong was pretty much like that, even though people thought it was bad. I don't care. I got to see super cool creatures, monsters fighting. So give me that. Now, Mark, let me ask you a question, because... We both seem to really not want to put Blade 2 out of this. Uh, and I'm, I'm wondering why, because for me, like Blade 2 is obviously not his best movie, but I love Blade in general. So maybe mm -hmm. that's why I have like a soft, you know, uh, uh, a room in, his, in my heart for the, for this movie, even though it's not the best. But just basically when Chris Christopherson like tosses his, uh, sh his black shades from the balcony, and Wesley Snipes like kind of gets his mojo back at the climax of the movie, like stupid shit like that. Is, oh, can I even cuss in here? I don't even remember. Please um, feel free. <laughs> stupid stuff like that is basically like what I'm like. Oh, you know what? This is a fun movie. I don't care. But what about so? So if we want to bring that back, what about Mimic then? Because that's kind of a controversial movie as well. Yeah, it, Mimic is, and, and Del Toro's got a great line about it that he said, I'll paraphrase him and butcher it, but he was talking about making Mimic, and he's like, you know, I had two really bad things happen to me uh, when I was making Mimic. Is a, And this is true, his, his father was kidnapped, 
And then he also had to work with with Harvey Weinstein. And he's like, I know which one was worth because it, it which which one was worse because at least with the kidnapping they had a reason behind it. <laughs> so <laughs> he's really not a fan well, of working with the uh, with the Weinsteins. No, and I guess um, apparently uh, Mira Sorvino, who obviously also had issues because everybody had issues with Harvey Weinstein, um, right. kind of helped. Like like she intervened and um and and basically convinced Harvey to not fire Guillermo. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also heard that Guillermo del Toro was friends with, uh, is friends with James Cameron. And I guess uh, because of how Guillermo was treated by the Weinsteins and Miramax, uh, James Cameron almost got into a fight with Harvey Weinstein at the 70th uh, Academy Awards. <laughs> so that would have been very funny to see in modern times with Twitter. I remember hearing that story. Yeah, I, I do remember hearing that. Um, is is James Cameron looking to to make a stand? But it, well, you, yeah, because well, because like I mean, that this is the problem that I have with executives. Not all of them, but a lot of them are like uh, the Weinstein's of the world. They're like, oh, I need more jump scares, right? Or or give me this idiotic happy ending that doesn't make any sense. So, right. so for those of you listening, uh, if you don't know, uh, Del Toro obviously did not like. Uh, or, or approve of the film as it was released, but he later did a director's cut. Yeah, and 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 the director's cut certainly more of his stamp on it, and so you can kind of feel that that awkwardness when you go back and watch the original versus the director's cut, the way that Del Toro wanted to tell the story versus the way that the studio did, and those are sort of the battles that you you sort of pick and choose as a filmmaker because again, you you look at each movie as an opportunity, but it also, when you're building a career like he was in the 90s, everything is a stepping stone and Mimic came out and it wasn't a a giant smash uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but I think that it did just enough to get him the gig with making something like Blade 2, where that comes out in 2002 and that's after The Devil's Backbone. And so, you know, you make your studio movie, you go back to your roots sort of, with uh with devil's backbone but he also in that time period had hellboy come out and hellboy was two years later it was 2004 is when that one came out and so i feel like the hellboy movies as companion pieces are significant of the arrival of del toro as far as the filmmaker and the vision that he wanted to convey now the famous thing with hellboy films is that they made some money but they cost a lot to put together and when you see the movies particularly Hellboy 2, The Golden Army. That, that I do agree with the tomato meter there. I think that's the better film than the first one. But when you watch either, either one of these movies, Darina, the imagination that is just dripping off of every frame, it's incredible. There's no stone unturned. There's no corner that is just left to, ah, whatever, we'll deal with it later. There's so much care and craft that goes into these movies. And I think the Hellboy films are the best example of just sort of opening up the brain of Guillermo del Toro and taking a look at what's inside there. Totally. Uh, It's actually kind of similar to what happened with Tim Burton's Batman movies, where he made this first, uh, he made the first Batman and it was very successful. They kind of just let him do whatever he wanted with Batman Returns, which is a Mm -hmm. masterpiece. And I will fight anyone, as you know, that Michael Keaton's the best (laughs) Batman. Batman Returns is the best Batman movie. Fight me. It's okay. You're going to love the episode that we we dropped a few weeks ago because we did celebrate Batman Returns. And we, I still think 89 is, is a, is a, Better movie, but Batman Returns is, I think it's the highest rated non of those four films from Batman through Batman and Robin, obviously. Batman Returns is the highest rated on the tomato meter. So there you go. 
Well, look at Rotten Tomatoes being right again. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's similar to that where uh, Hellboy, I it looks freaking great, man. Like we get a cool giant HP Lovecraft tentacle monster at the end. Like it's, it's. Yeah. I mean, this is, I'm sure Guillermo was like, this is my dream. I have all this money. Uh, I have executives that are kind of letting me do what I, wa- I want finally. Like I, I, Hellboy himself looks amazing. Ron Perlman looks like such a badass. Uh, and you would think like a... Mike Mignola, a creature that Mike Mignola created, uh, how would that translate to film? That's not easy to not, you know, to make an actual Hellboy not look ridiculous uh, on a film adaptation. So I think Guillermo did a great job, but I do like the second, the sequel one better, similar to Batman Returns. Like, I think Guillermo here was like, I get to create the world of my dream since I was a kid. And that's why you see like, 22 different monsters everywhere. And um, I love um, how uh, cheesy it gets. One of my favorite scenes is uh, when Hellboy is uh, getting drunk on Tecate with Ape Sapien and they're singing (laughs) Barry Manilow, I Can't Smile Without You. You know, like it's just such a fun movie. And it kind of made a lot of uh, Hellboy fans mad (laughs) because of that. Uh, But I loved it. I think it's great. I especially love the scene. Do you know when they're in the the market and there's that dude? In Hellboy 2? Yeah, you know when yeah. they're uh, they have a there's that dude that has like a monster and he has like a little freaking baby coming out of him, <laughs> and and the baby's like, I'm not a baby, I'm a tumor. Yes, yes, we will only don't hit me anymore. Chicken. Who bought the tooth fairies? Prince Nuada. They say Prince Nuada broke the truce, and now there is talk of war, of war the human world. Sorry, kid. That's all right. A nice baby. I'm not a baby. I'm a tumor. <laughs> it's, it's a talking tumor movie. How can you how can you not like that? I'm glad you brought up Abe Sapien, too, because of all of the splendid creations that Doug Jones, the actor, has inhabited, I feel like Abe Sapien just lends so much to those because he's equal parts. I mean, look, he's amphibious, so he's kind of like the creature in the shape of water, but he also has this, this like C-3PO kind of quality where just a little nerdy, dorky, but also it acts as some comic relief sometimes in the movies, and it's a great balance to all of the 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 creatures that we're seeing, the darkness that we're seeing. I mean, Hellboy's own backstory is, is just a harrowing tale, and so to have Abe Sapien there just to kind of elevate the mood a little bit, I think it's just the perfect compliment to Hellboy. It works in the comics, and it certainly works on the big screen. Totally. Yeah, no, I really like those two movies. I think they're especially for the time of, uh, you know, pre MCU and 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 how we get very kind of formulaic assembly line superhero movies now, as much as I love Endgame and, and other ones. Um, I, I just think that they're really fun, uh, a little bit Hollywood-esque, but but still uh, very fun superhero movies that are not are very unique, especially for its time. They're very different than a lot of the stuff that was coming out from like, you know, Marvel and DC. So I think they're pretty solid movies and um, I think they do deserve uh, number five and six. Let's talk about the movie that hit at number seven, and that is Nightmare Alley. And that's a movie that I was super looking forward to because the cast is second to none. I mean, you got your Bradley Cooper, you got your Cate Blanchett, amongst others. And then you have this premise that is is borrowed from a previous film. And then you also have Del Toro lending his style to it. 
I felt like this movie, and there's a black and white version that's that, that's sort of going around that he's screened a little bit that I got to see a little bit of, and oh, cool. I think it the black and white even works better. Obviously, that's not the way that they should release the movie. I'm glad they released it in glorious Technicolor to begin with, so that you know you can get people in the theater because black and white is just so. Oh, I, I don't know, is this too artsy for me? But when you go back and watch Nightmare Alley, check it out. If you ever get a chance to watch the black and white version, it adds so much more to it because there's sort of less you can make out, and it makes it a little scarier. And it also just gets you into this sort of vibe of this weird, freakish, funhouse carnival, kind of really the dark side of carny life. What was your take on Nightmare Alley when you saw it? I really liked it. Um, and uh, thanks for pointing out the black and white version, because I obviously must see Kate Blanchett in black and white. Uh, <laughs> no, I thought it was great and um, and different from his stuff in the sense that it seems like most of his movies, like you can see kind of, you know, the and, and a director maturing uh, in Nightmare Alley. Like you, you can see how like he started, you know, back in the day when he made Kronos, his first feature film was obviously about existential angst right and and uh, the whole the whole story of the movie the premise is basically this man prolonging his life uh no matter what uh and so uh, a lot of the themes in Guillermo's movies are you know anti uh authority right uh anti-fascism uh uh, you know, basically, he's he's very much like a lot of us Mexicans uh, that are into horror that we are, you know, uh, anti-religion, anti anything that's institutionalized, right? Whether it's uh, mm -hmm. society, whether it's religion, whether it's anything that's like basically making uh, people live in an unnatural way, right? And so, it, with Nightmare Alley, he takes us to this story of a uh, basically a grifter. Right. That's kind of uh, being conniving to people. And um, and you you kind of expect in his movies to have these either uh, very heartbreaking endings like Pan's Labyrinth, but or very happy endings. And so I thought this was a very different uh uh, story that he told that's more about uh, greed and power. Right. And, and the choices that somebody can make um, to and how those choices and those decisions that you make throughout your life actually kind of tell your story and how it's going to end. Right. And how you have to face those decisions. And so uh, I thought I thought it not only looked freaking cool because all his movies look cool, but uh, I just thought it was like a cool take on what's going on in the world and, and you know, people's belief systems and, and how they're trying to to grift human beings all the time just because they want more and more and more. And they're not satisfied with all the power and money that they have. It's a it's an excellent point you make about just his his sort of viewpoint as a filmmaker and the messaging that he tries to get across. And I think succeeds, even if we're not walking out of the theater talking about, man, that was some really good anti-fascist material because you're talking about the creatures and all the fantastical stuff. It does kind of stick to your ribs a little bit. The the themes that he's putting into his movies. So finally here, I want to take you back to Kronos and I want you to rena to sort of like it, it just put us in the in the frame of mind that you were in when when you heard of this movie when you saw this movie for the first time and how you would sell this movie to people who are fans of del toro now but maybe haven't gone back and checked out his back catalog quite as extensively what is it about chronos that that made you see maybe the potential in a filmmaker like Guillermo del toro like this guy can do this with basically a shoestring budget imagine what he can do once we give him billions of dollars to create these fantastical worlds Look, if you're like me and you grew up in the 80s and 90s with vampire stories like Bram Stoker's Dracula and Interview with a Vampire, where vampires are actually real and scary or and more like Nosferatu as opposed to the modern 
uh, generation who grew up with Twilight, this is the movie for you. <laughs> this is the and Kronos is basically the anti Twilight. Uh, Guillermo del Toro actually really hates vamp- uh, when people portray vampires as sexualized creatures, right? Because to him, the the uh, the actual idea of a vampire is scary because all they care about is having more life, and they'll go to super extreme lengths uh, than anybody else to stay alive. And so it's about it's more about the seductiveness of immortality. Right. Uh, versus just getting it on with a sparkly dude that doesn't eat people. So he's not a real <laughs> vampire. No dig to Robert Pattinson because they're good actors. But uh, I, I I really like this movie. Like it's not for everybody. I think it, it was made in 1993 is when it came out. Like I was mm-hmm. 11. So obviously when I saw it, I was like, this is really cool. But I'm not sure uh, if you've never seen it. Um, if, if, if you're not into old movies, depending on what generation you are, you would you would like it unless you're like me where you're like anti-Twilight and you love Nosferatu. And uh, it's more about like existential angst and and uh, the lengths that a man will go to stay alive, even though you're not really living a truly like fulfilling life. It, it's so funny you bring that up because I, I start to think about it in terms of like the horror movies that really influenced me because when you're a kid and you see a horror movie, there, there's always that one flick. And for me, it might have just been, this might be hacky, it might have been The Exorcist where I've seen horror movies before, but that's the first time where I started to get the layered meaning of this and, and I started to get deeper into what the story was actually telling us as opposed to just the scary visuals because I, like you, you wait until... Your, your parents fall asleep, then you sneak downstairs. Me and my older sister would try to watch movies like on USA Up All Night. So we caught It's Alive, the baby killer movie. The, 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 the killer is the baby. And then my <laughs> aunt took us to see Pet Cemetery. We were way too young. And that was a nice little furthering of my matriculation into horror. But then The Exorcist hits. And those movies like Kronos for you are sort of those benchmarks of how you see films, the kind of movies that you want to see. And it, it it's fun to hear an impressionable Darina, uh, watch something like Kronos and just sort of take that in. And I feel like knowing you like I do now, that really sort of informed your outlook and, and what your goals with art consumption are. Totally. Yeah, no, I mean, it's 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 so strange and awesome at the same time to see this man, um, you know, uh, just be kind of like uh, or like Alfonso Cuaron, right, where like you you heard of these people as a kid growing up in Mexico um, and you're like, oh, like these, you know, th- these are people that seem talented and now to see them become very successful uh, in Hollywood and win Oscars, like it's it makes you feel uh, good because it you relate. To, uh, for me, I obviously relate to these people, right? Like uh, a lot of kids that grow up in a very structured um, society uh, end up creating art that helps. Um, you know, little kids um, kind of like not feel like outcasts, right? Like from the Tim Burtons to the Guillermo del Toros of the world. Like, um, I think that this is kind of what helps a lot of people survive when they're in darkness, right? So uh, I'm a huge fan of this man. And um, and for sure, he's he definitely has made an impression. And I'm looking forward to seeing what else he's he's got, because what a talent. I know you and the world girls just you all just keep pumping out great content and your new podcast offshoot bitch out of water. Y'all get into some like more serious stuff. And I've heard a couple of the episodes and it's really good. The three of you just sort of it's it's like y- you get deeper into a societal issue into your own background and having the three of you together makes it just feel like a safe space. But you're also really you're, you're opening up a new side of yourselves to the world. 
Well, you know, uh, if you guys haven't heard, uh, because we're very new, we've only been around for like a couple of years. Uh, it's the little startup that could, through the pandemic, uh, the world grows. And it literally, we just give things a whirl. Uh, it's Roxy Stryer, Steph Sabra, and me. And uh, and we're all very different girls with very different backgrounds uh, that have seem to have a, a good chemistry and complement each other uh, in the best way possible. Uh, even though, you know, Roxy is a Patriots fan and, you know, you, you got to love Love your enemies. It's okay. Can't um, do it. Can't yeah, do it. It's very sad. But um, she's from Boston, so she has the excuse. But uh, <laughs> you know, it's 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 a it's a weird concept that just started as like we give things a whirl, kind of like the Try Guys and Jackass, and it became this amazing little community. Uh, our audience is so cool, and you usually don't get to see cool, uh, uh, you know, internet people is usually internet trolls. We're very proud of our community. <laughs> we kind of call ourselves uh, sexy Mr. Rogers uh, because we're trying to spread joy and love and tolerance. And the only thing we don't tolerate is uh, intolerance. And um, so we're very proud of what we've done. And and we've gone from, you know, taking Steph's abroad to Halloween Horror Nights at Universal Studios and having her, you know, run from a chainsaw man to now doing a podcast where we talk about, you know, uh, grieving and, uh, you know, polyamorous relationships. And uh, and also we recently just did a, 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 a podcast on growing up Catholic. Right. Because that's a whole other animal that Guillermo del Toro can definitely identify with. So uh, so it's been fun. So so if you guys want to catch us, we're everywhere. We're on the YouTubes. We're on all podcast platforms. Uh, Bitch Out of Water just came out this year. Uh, so give it a listen. And uh, we're also on, on all the social medias uh, at The World Girls. That is Drina Ariano. She's just uh, she's such a sweetheart. She's such a dark soul. And it's just a nice mesh of everything together. It kind of like if Gamma del Toro could make the perfect human, he probably would make Darina. So, uh, Darina, we, we say thank you and good night um, to you, but not before getting some sort of recommendation from you. We're coming up on the scary season. We're in the midst of October. Halloween's approaching. What is a movie or TV recommendation that you have that everybody needs to check out? Is it something in the wheelhouse of a, of a del Toro or is it something completely different do you want to recommend an episode of cheers to us it, you have the floor uh well, i actually love cheers but i prefer fraser just so you know um i look this year has been one of the best years for horror movies if you're a horror fan i have so many recommendations from the black phone uh, all the way uh back to yeah. x and and the new movie that came out uh came out pearl but i finally got to see barbarian and God damn, what a movie, what a picture. It is a great, great movie. It is so much fun. Um, I felt like a little kid when I was watching Sam Raimi movies like Evil mm -hmm. Dead and and later on Drag Me to Hell. It's just a ridiculous, you know, unique uh, twists and turns a movie. You have no idea what's happening. It's it's just so much fun. It's uh, I'm the movies are back is what I'm saying. You 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 guys should definitely go see this. I knew nothing about it, so definitely do that. Do not don't even watch trailers. Just go see it. Uh, but all I knew was that Bill Skarsgård was in it. <laughs> and that's it. Yeah, right. So it's it's really uh, it's really great, and it's a newcomer um, uh, film composer Anna Drubik who did a fantastic job. Really, really good little movie. It's my favorite of the year. Yeah, and as uh, I'll just say, as somebody who travels quite often, it'll uh, 
it'll make you think twice about uh, some some arrangements that you might have coming up. So uh, check out Barbarian. Uh, check out the World Girls, their podcast offshoot, Bitch Out of Water. They get into more serious topics. It's always an entertaining time with them. And once again, you can email us, rtiswrong at rottentomatoes.com. Be like our friend Leo Douglas. Uh, this podcast is able to subscribe, rate, review, share, whatever your platform of choice has you do. Go ahead and do it for us. We really appreciate it. Next week's episode... I imagine Doreen would have some thoughts on this as well. We're tackling the entire franchise that takes place on a quite little suburban street known as Elm Street. Nightmare on Elm Street, the entire franchise, the highs, the lows, the Dream Warriors, my favorite one. Will anybody agree with me? That is going to be determined next week. In the meantime, for everyone here at Rotten Tomatoes, our, our new welcome to the crew for Glenn. We also have super engineer Brian, producer Lucy, Jacqueline Coley, the whole gang at RT.com, including Alex Vo, who put together that wonderful Guillermo del Toro countdown editorial. I am merely Mark Ellis. For the great Doreen Ariano and the World Girls, thanks for listening to this episode of Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong. We'll see you next week. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.